From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's possible to die because of the pandemic without contracting COVID-19. The isolation, the fear, can lead to suicide, overdoses. We'll have one family story. Then, the United Arab Emirates set a lofty goal a while back to send a spacecraft to Mars. Lofty because it had only a fledgling space program. Rather than import talent, they decided to quickly train their own, which is where Colorado comes in. Boulder, specifically, a story of international cooperation with an interstellar outcome. Later, it's an approach to homelessness that Denver's mayor wouldn't have approved of, but then the pandemic came. This virus has placed its own reality on our plans, and it must be met with different strategies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Death by suicide and drug overdoses was already a problem in our state before the pandemic. But the fear and isolation of COVID-19 may be making things worse. There has been a slight uptick since the pandemic began, but officials say it's too early to suss out exactly why. Grace Secret thinks the pandemic was a major factor in her sister's overdose death. And Grace, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Your sister, Sarah Whitner, died in April at age 31 in Broomfield at your family's home. She was staying there during the pandemic. What's the thing you miss most about her? Um, We bonded a lot over music. That was a huge thing for us. So um, we were constantly just sitting and listening to music pretty much any time we were together. What were your musical tastes together? Um, Everything from Elton John, Hall and Oates, um, musical theater, atmosphere, Panic at the Disco. We had a, a pretty big range. Yeah, it is a broad range. Would you sing together? Yes, we would. Sarah was very vocally talented. Tell us briefly about her struggles with addiction over the years. Um, she had quite a few struggles that started out after she had a surgery. Um, I don't remember the exact year, but it was quite a few years ago. Um, and I'm pretty sure she kind of left the hospital after her surgery dependent on opioids. Um, And she was able to find sobriety for quite a few years. Um, She did have a few reoccurrences of use in between those. Um, But she ended up passing away from the reoccurrence of use during the pandemic. And you attribute the conditions of the pandemic, what, in part, in large part, entirely? How do you square this? Um, It's hard to say entirely. I would say in large part. um, I think all of Sarah's resources and safety nets were kind of removed during the pandemic. Give us examples of that. um, She could no longer go to NA meetings. Um, She couldn't just call up one of her friends from recovery programs or treatment programs to go get coffee with. Um, or just to kind of get a distraction to spend time with. Um, In addition, her doctor's appointments were postponed. Um, She was on the Vivitrol shot that was supposed to be given at 30 days, and it was postponed until 45 days, and she actually ended up passing away the day before her postponed appointment. And I'll say that Vivitrol is a drug that helps people deal with cravings. Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that 12-step meetings have moved online, so they haven't disappeared entirely, but that was not apparently a a decent enough substitute for your sister, you're saying? Um, She was doing the online um, meetings and over-the-phone meetings, um, I think one big part of her recovery and her sobriety was personal connection with people. Um, So 
the online meetings that she was doing were kind of cold and personal. She didn't know anybody through them. Um, and she couldn't have that physical and personal connection with the people she had gotten used to going through recovery with. It's interesting to me because a lot of medical procedures were deemed essential. And of course, a lot were not. And so there were people who went without care for a period of time. I gather that these Vivitrol treatments to deal with the cravings, they had not been deemed essential. That's what it sounds like to me because of, because it was postponed. So, and, and do you think that was the biggest key to this? I do. Personally, um, Sarah really raved about the Vivitrol shot. You know, she said it was extremely helpful to her and that almost all cravings were gone when she had it. Um, So I think that going from, you know, a month with that Vivitrol shot to nothing and kind of all of her cravings rushing back in, I think, was a huge part in her recurrence of use. You found your sister's body. I did. At your family's home. I guess, first of all, how has this affected your own mental health, which would already have been tested by the pandemic? You know, you're dealing with this, too. Yeah, um, it's been it's been quite difficult Um, over the years of Sarah struggling with substance abuse disorder. um, I've come to be a little more um, hardened, if that makes sense, Um, just because it is a really hard thing to see someone struggle with. Um, so, but you know, the family's all working together to comfort each other and get through it the best that we can. You at least have that closeness, right? In your family's home. Yes. We have a very large family with lots of people. So, um, everyone living together. Have you heard from others who've had loved ones relapse, perhaps die during the pandemic under similar circumstances? Yeah, actually, um, complete strangers, (laughs) a few people, um, I went to get my hair done a few days ago at the salon and there was a couple of ladies there and both ladies had experienced their families, family members passing away either due to mental health issues or substance abuse during the pandemic. Um, and did they think that that too was because of the pandemic or exa- it exacerbated the circumstances? Yes. Um, they made it seem as if the pandemic wasn't there, that that probably wouldn't have happened. You know, no one can say for sure, yeah. but... So did your sister's death come as a surprise? Yes, um, very much so. From what everyone could tell, Sarah was doing very well. She was engaged to be married, planning a wedding, hoping to have babies one day. You know, everything seemed well and she seemed positive and confident in her recovery. She died of an overdose. Do you think she intended to die? I don't believe so at all. Um, That must be a question you think about a lot. Yeah, no, I I don't believe so just based on um, significant plans. I know that um, it could have been a spur of the moment decision, but, you know, Sarah had real extensive plans for the rest of her life. And I do not think that um, overdosing was part of those. Is there any advice or words that you would share with people who have uh, this struggle for themselves or in their own family? Yeah, I would say um, reach out to your family, reach out to your loved ones. Um, I know there's kind of a stigma around substance abuse disorder, but um, I think a lot more people are willing to be supportive than some may think. And do you think then that your sister Sarah failed to reach out as much as she could? And I, I, the, the word fail is not a great 
choice of words. So I want to soften that. Do you think that there were ways in which she could have reached out more? Um, You know, I'm not sure. Um, You know, I'm not sure if she reached out to any of her friends beforehand, if she when she started feeling like she was struggling. I'm not sure if she um, reached out to sponsors or anything like that. Um, So that would kind of be play into that. I know it was very hard for her to reach out to me specifically because she thought I would be disappointed in her. Mm. Um, I obviously would not have been, you know, I would have tried my best to support her, but I think that she always felt like there was stigma around her and her use. Grace, thank you so much. I know this is really still fresh, but I'm so grateful for your candor. Thank you. Grace Secrest's sister Sarah Whitner died of an opioid overdose in Broomfield just in April. Secra and her family attribute her death in part to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. If you are in crisis or are looking for mental health services, text TALK to 38255 to speak with a trained counselor. So TALK to 38255. ICE, U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, recently announced new rules for foreign students, which could force some out of the country. Denverite's Kevin Beatty spoke with a Colorado student who's affected. Meet Alejandro. I am Alejandro Martinez from Madrid, Spain. He plays tennis at Metro State University in Denver. I'm double majoring in marketing and management. And this week, he learned federal immigration officials changed some rules that would force him to go back home if he doesn't swap some classes. ICE announced that international students here with F-1 visas cannot remain in the U.S. if they have a full course load of virtual classes. Martinez has already picked his classes, and... As of now, they're all online. The new rules were announced as President Trump has prodded schools to reopen in spite of spiking coronavirus cases. He said Harvard University should be, quote, ashamed, since the school plans to hold all classes online next semester. So we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on open your schools in the fall. In Denver, about 2,000 international students have registered to begin classes this year. CU Boulder alone hosted 3,000 foreign students in 2019. Martinez said he heard about the changes in an online group full of Spanish athletes studying in the U.S., And we all just got really shocked and started kind of like panicking because we were being told that we have to go home. Universities are holding a lot of virtual courses to avoid spreading COVID-19. But many in Colorado will still offer in-person classes, too. Martinez said he's working with his counselor to swap or add a class, so he's not forced to fly back to Spain. It's going to be a busy week. David Fine is MSU's general counsel. He said it shouldn't be too hard to make sure all 160 international students there are taken care of. It certainly would be possible for a student to adjust their schedule so that they're not entirely taking online classes. And there's no problem with that. Trump's administration has rolled back legal immigration pathways in recent years. Students like Martinez have enjoyed relative stability up until now. The news hit him hard. It's not my say whether to say that's correct or not, but... It's definitely a little bit, like, heartbreaking. You're taking all my dreams of staying here and all my possibilities of further my education, of my goals. With classes starting soon, a group of universities, including Harvard, is suing to stop the order. Kevin Beatty, Denverite. COVID has introduced a new reality. Those words from Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock, who recently announced he supports the creation of sanctioned camps for people experiencing homelessness. Now, I've come 
to this last step with some reluctance because I firmly believe the policy of the city should be the good people in housing and not in tents. And we are going to do our very best to replace these tents with rooms. But this virus has placed its own reality on our plans, and it must be met uh, with different strategies. Now, with some perspective on what's happening, we're joined by Denverites housing and homelessness reporter Donna Bryson. Donna, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. Right now, there are dozens of tents across from the state capitol, along some city streets. I saw a bunch right near the governor's mansion this weekend. Previously, Mayor Hancock has resisted the idea of sanctioned camping, but he has asked council members to identify a potential camping area in each of their districts. How would that work? Well, probably first need to be clear that there is a difference in the mayor's mind between sanctioned camping that he's, uh, as he said, reluctantly embracing and unsanctioned camping. Uh, Unsanctioned camping is still illegal under the urban camping ban. The mayor has even said that uh, if he gets the sanctioned camps up and running, they might crack down on, on the unsanctioned camping under the camping ban. So what we're talking about in terms of sanctioned camping are camps that the city would would uh, permit that would be managed by a nonprofit that would have services such as bathrooms and showers and also access to um, uh, counseling on getting jobs, on on getting housing, on uh, getting health care. And we're probably looking at two or three in town, 60 60 tents or so. Mm. Some of those tents would have uh, couples in them, so it's not 60 people, maybe a few more than 60 people, so pretty small. There would be... uh, room between the tents so that people could social distance, as we have all, all are learning to do to stop the spread of the coronavirus. And that's what we're talking about. And the idea would be that members of council find potential places in their districts and then bring that to the mayor, to the full council. Uh, again, right now, there are un- unsanctioned camps in some parts of Denver. Council member Chris Hines represents the area that includes Maury Middle School in the Capitol Hill area. Talk about the tension you're hearing there. Yes, so it's been going on for weeks now. The camp that's been growing all around Maury Middle School. If you walk around the school now, you'll see camp tents lining it all the way around. Uh, people living in houses in that neighborhood have have concerns about drug use in the camps. They have concerns about crime. Uh, they have concerns about what school children and teachers and staff will find once once school starts. Tell us more about what people around that camp are saying. Uh, There was one, uh, as as you mentioned, council member Chris Hines is the council member for that, that, for the district that includes Maury, and he held kind of a Zoom town hall Hmm. during which uh, neighbors spoke uh, about their, their fears, you know, their fears of crime, their, their, and their concerns about, uh, the impact on the neighborhood in terms of the trash, in terms of, of that trash and human waste drawing vermin, rats. Uh, those, those are some of the things we heard during the town hall meeting and things I've heard speaking to neighbors as well. Not to discount those concerns, but um, is there perhaps an unfair characterization of the people who find themselves living in these camps based on your reporting? Well, certainly the time I've spent walking around the camp and talking to people, I see people, one, trying to keep it as clean as they can. You know, every time I go there, I see people sweeping and trying to find a place for the trash. Um, one man I spoke to last week was talking about just how much he would like to have a shower and how many people living there would probably feel the same. And he talked about going down to uh, Cherry Creek with a bucket and washing himself there. So the uh, But the, the main thing I think I hear from 
people there is uh, a focus on housing. We're talking about camping, whether it's sanctioned or unsanctioned, but the uh, the issue here is is finding housing for people who don't have homes. And is, is the idea that the sanctioned camps that the city may create, would they have access to showers and things like that? Yeah, there would be portable showers, portable toilets. Uh, That's a glimpse at, I think it's District 9, kind of in the heart of the city, uh, not far from the state capitol. What do other council members say about finding a location for sanctioned camps? Uh, the mayor specifically asked the council members who had sent him a letter in April supporting this idea of sanctioned camping. And uh, among them, kind of a variety of responses. The mayor specifically asked for them to nominate places in their districts. And council member Paul Cashman, who was m- among those who signed that letter, uh, named a couple places that aren't in his district. But others, in the, others who were who signed that letter have reached out to their constituents asking them for ideas. Uh, Council Member Hines has said that he's identified a place in his district. Um, it's on private property, he says, and he hasn't been able to speak to the owner, so he's not willing to say where that would be. Uh, people in his in his district, interestingly, have said to me that they'd be that they think the site should be on Bannock, right in front of uh, where the mayor sits, where the city council huh. members sit, and across from. Uh, the state capitol so that this problem would be front and center for policymakers. It's an interesting idea. In just the last few seconds here, Donna, all of this is happening against the backdrop of a housing market that has really not gotten cheaper despite the pandemic. Certainly not for buying homes. The, uh, the, it seems like that market is still pretty hot. Uh, for renting, it's, it seems to be, and a lot of people have told me that the rental market is much more sensitive and much more responsive. And we are starting to see a decrease or a flattening out. But this is after years of housing prices rising much more quickly than wages have risen. And that's kind of at the heart of the housing problem. I know you'll continue to follow this story and we'll continue to read your stuff on Denverite. Thanks so much, Donna. Thanks, Ryan. Bye-bye. Donna Bryson, housing and homeless reporter for Denverite, which is a part of Colorado Public Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement has united people from many backgrounds and races, but there's also a divide within the Hispanic and Latino community whether to support black people's cause or focus on their own. Here's CPR's May Ortega. People of color have marched side by side for decades, calling for an end to police brutality and asking for fair, equal treatment. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote to farm worker champion Cesar Chavez in support of Mexican-American rights. King said that their separate struggles were really one. And a lot of people of color are still fighting together, marching in the streets. Now that national attention is largely focused on restorative justice and equality for black Americans. But there's a divide among some Latinos. Some say they should focus on their own issues instead of backing Black Lives Matter. Xochil Gaitan, co-chair of the Colorado Latino Forum, knows this debate well. She's heard it many times over many years. There are people in the Latino, Chicano, Mexicano community that believe when we move in the direction of helping our Black brothers and sisters, it takes away from the Latino, Chicano, Mexicano movement and the issues that affect our community specifically. Gaitan believes that her people need to unite behind Black Lives Matter. Our Black brothers and sisters must be uplifted in order for us Latino, brown people, indigenous people 
to be liberated and, and uplifted as well. This is a complicated conversation, and it doesn't only exist within the Latinx community. There are several reasons why people choose to support the Black Lives Matter movement, or not, and there are various arguments on either side. Sometimes a person's race and their own biases, which are sometimes passed down through generations, come into play. One argument in favor of supporting the cause goes like this. Black people have experienced some of the worst treatment in United States history. If they gain more civil rights, protections, and respect, it'll benefit other marginalized groups as well. And on the other side of the debate, some people argue that other marginalized groups need to focus their energy on their own problems. Michael Mattis owns a record company called 5050 Entertainment, and he works with all kinds of people. Mattis says he supports Black Lives Matter, but he wants his people's issues to get some recognition too. So, he says, Latinos need to stand together. You stick with the same movement, you support the same person, you stay loyal to your people, you're going to grow. Maris says he's dealt with racial profiling and police violence, and he hates seeing his fellow Latinos tear each other down when there's a lot of equality they need to gain. It has to be the whole Latino community coming together as one. We set the differences aside and come together and make a better community for ourselves. And then I think that the Latino community will be way stronger. And he says that instead of chanting Black Lives Matter, people should say Minority Lives Matter because all people of color deserve better treatment. The debate over Latinos supporting Black people isn't new to Tezcatli Diaz. She says having these conversations can bring out what she calls the Oppression Olympics. That is, everyone saying that their group has it worse. People of different cultures and races have been historically oppressed in various ways, and sometimes they'll argue that their people have had it harder than others, in a sort of game of trying to one-up each other. Diaz says all of that trauma is very real and valid, but those fights can get in the way of of real progress. Who has hurt most and who has been um, oppressed the most? And that's such a distracting conversation because if nothing else, we can all agree on who put us in that position in the first place. To be clear, Diaz is talking historically about white people. To help things move forward, Diaz is hosting a series of virtual community conversations where people can discuss why they support or oppose the Black Lives Matter movement. She says she hopes it can spark some understanding and unity. We all have a common oppressor, and if we're all trying to fight our own individual fights, we've been doing what they've wanted us to do by design. They've literally siloed off our oppression and made the way they oppress us so unique so that we can't find camaraderie even in the struggle because it looks so different. She says overcoming oppression and injustice is already hard enough, but she argues that if everybody wants things to change, they have to put the work in together. I'm May Ortega, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with hope for exploring Mars. You're with CPR News. CPR is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now, telling the truth of the story without hype or compromise. This vital news coverage is made possible through community support. If you're already a CPR member, 
Thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. If you're in a position to make a gift or to increase your giving, help keep CPR strong at CPR.org. When the United Arab Emirates announced it would send a spacecraft to Mars, it was an ambitious goal for a small but wealthy country with only a fledgling space agency. Well, tomorrow, if all goes to plan, the HOPE spacecraft launches for the Red Planet, made possible by a unique collaboration between the UAE and CU Boulder. Lead systems engineer Mohsen Alawadi is with us from Dubai. Mohsen, welcome to the program. Hey, morning, Ryan. How's it going? Doing well. HOPE won't land on Mars. It's designed to get into the planet's orbit and study the atmosphere. And right now it's sitting on top of a Mitsubishi rocket in Japan. Are you nervous about tomorrow's launch? I think I have kind of like mixed feelings between believing that this is actually real and between being stressed about what to expect and the whole um, launch. And yeah, totally mixed feelings, but I think we're really excited. The whole country is really, really excited. The whole country is rooting for you. Do you feel that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, briefly just going through social media and hearing from the people and um, kids in school um, how much this is meaning to them and what it's bringing. Um, it's actually, again, as I mentioned, it feels like a dream. It does not feel realistic to me. Huh. Um, that I mean, this is the the mission itself, hope. And I feel like that is the impact. We are already starting to see it, um, which is a great feeling for sure. The The background here is really fascinating. Uh, the UAE was looking for a way to mark its 50th anniversary in 2021. And that's when hope is supposed to arrive at the Red Planet. Uh, you know, some countries might have considered a parade or fireworks. Why Mars? Um, So our leaders like to challenge its people, um, and that's why we get to where we are. Um, We are not even 50 years old yet, and the ambitious and the vision of the leadership here is to aim up and make sure you're challenging your people and your team to better yourself. Um, And one of the main goals of this mission was to show the region. We unfortunately are in a bad region, not so friendly where we are on the map. And the plan or or the vision of this mission was to give a better hope to the next generation, to the coming generation, to the youth of the country and the region as well. Um, That is one of the main goals behind this mission, for sure. It reminds me of the American moon launch, you know, the idea of doing something hard, as President Kennedy said. And, you know, getting to Mars is dicey. Nearly half of all missions have failed. And uh, the UAE was starting essentially from scratch. But instead of hiring experts, the country decided to grow them. And you, as I said in the introduction, are now the lead systems engineer for the Hope spacecraft. I'm just curious, what were you doing in 2014 when this program was announced? Uh, So I joined the Space Center back in 2014, and I was working as an aircraft engineer in an aviation field back in Dubai for almost four years. Um, So when I first made the movie here, um, I had no space background, but I was just interested in it. And at that point, the the Space Center had a UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle project. That's how I got myself into this place. And late 
2014 is when they announced the Mars mission, and I was approached and given the opportunity, do you want to be a mission systems engineer on the Mars mission? And my answer was yes, let's, let's do it. Um, and that's the idea. The knowledge transfer was the big objective of this mission, um, to have engineers from and within the space center rather than hiring them from outside and grow that knowledge within the space center. And that's really where the University of Colorado comes in. CU pledged to teach you and your colleagues to build a Mars spacecraft. You moved to Boulder for five years. And um, how, how did they approach your training? Yeah, so yes, as you said, I moved there um, early 2015. And the knowledge transfer program, the way that CU Boulder um, last in specific, the lab in, in CU Boulder, uh, the way that we were trained, so each engineer had a counterpart to him or her. Mm-hmm. And the uh, role of these counterparts from CU was to teach us and then let us go on our own, do the research, and then implement what we are learning. And we were given ownership. We were not just taught and that's it. No, we were given tasks, and you have to complete this task. If you don't do it, there's no one else to do it for you. Um, so that kind of ownership made everyone realize that if I need to learn, I really need to understand the system and I need to be able to design it and troubleshoot it and if there's any anomalies and so on. Um, so that was the approach that was taken. And I did my master's um, in C Boulder as well. I was given the opportunity mm-hmm. and I realized even in classes, that's the role model that the university is following. Like the classes that I was in the aerospace engineering. That's the same thing. The graduate projects, they were actually real projects, and you were actually working on real things that's going to space. Um, so that raw model or that that example was taking for EMM as well, but on a bigger scale, on a, on a project that's going to Mars. You mentioned LASP. I'll just say that's the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics in Boulder. And if you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters, and my guest is Mohsen Alawadi. He's lead systems engineer for the Emirates Mars mission, which has been developed in collaboration with CU Boulder. And um, the the spacecraft I know was built in Boulder, and I wonder what kind of scientific research Hope will conduct if and when, let me say when, uh, it reaches the Martian atmosphere, Mosin. Yes, so this, again, I mean, we had... I forgot the exact number, but I think around 200 collaborators that's working with us to deliver this spacecraft. There is, I mean, one of the requirements that we got from the government is you have to do this by the 50th year um, anniversary of UAE. Of the Emirates, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and the, the, the launch window for that, I mean, for Mars, for you to be able to go to Mars, you have a chance every two years. So it made sense 2020 is good enough. We had six years to do this. Um, which is, again, this is almost half of the time that other projects take. To wow. it. But again, we have to do it smartly. We did not build everything from scratch. There are critical items that, yes, we wanted to develop, but there are items that we just felt like we should outsource it and just learn how to design it and basically implement it on the spacecraft. So there is a smart way we had to find to deliver this in six years. Yeah, and let me just say that the and reason there are such the, the reason there are such uh, specific windows for Mars is that the Earth and Mars need to be fairly close together. I mean, they're quite far apart even when they're close together, but uh, that way uh, it's a reasonable trajectory to Mars. But what, what scientific research will HOPE conduct? 
Yeah, so this is another objective that a requirement was given to us, is not to do something that has been done previously. Yeah. We know this is your first time doing this, but you still have to be a unique mission. You have to contribute to the science community. So what we did is met up with scientists to understand what is the data that is missing on Mars. So one thing that is till today there's no data on is a holistic view of the Martian atmosphere. So, for example, like currently all the missions on Mars are giving a specific time data, worth of data, and, and a specific season. But the EMM Hope will provide holistic view, uh, like the whole day, all seasons, at all times. Mm. Um, that data has not been there, so that is something that we'll be providing to the science community. And what we are studying is basically understanding the scape of the atmosphere, what happened, and that's basically by understanding the lower atmosphere and the upper atmosphere of Mars and linking them together to understand what happened as why there is. Yeah, I've heard it. There anymore, it's really thin. I've heard it described that there has been on Mars an extreme version of climate change because uh, something happened to the atmosphere. There are lots of questions about exactly what. It sounds like you'll help get a clearer picture of that. Mosin, thanks so much for being with us. Mosin Alawadi, lead systems engineer for the Emirates Mars mission, developed in collaboration with CU Boulder. It launches tomorrow from Japan, and this is a busy month for Mars missions, given how close we are to the red planet at the moment, China will launch a probe and NASA will send a new rover, Perseverance. And we'll be right back with what Madeleine Albright had to say at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? Keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Hell and Other Destinations is the new book from Madeleine Albright. The former Secretary of State spent her teenage years in Denver. Her father founded the Foreign Relations School at the University of Denver. And she recently spoke about her new memoir at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Secretary's colleague and friend, Ambassador Nicholas Burns, asked her about a distinctive pin she was wearing in the shape of a V. It does relate to the book, because in the book, I write about the fact that I spent World War II in London with my parents. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat, and we were in London all through the Blitz. And he worked with the government in exile, and his job was to broadcast over BBC. And so I actually thought he was in the radio, uh, but I listened to BBC, and every BBC broadcast was preceded by a drum roll, <clears throat> which really was the first notes of, the, of Beethoven's fifth, da-da-da-dum, which in Morse code is victory. And so I thought that I would wear a V for victory pin, and uh, it seems to be applicable to a lot of other things at the moment, but that is the purpose of it, victory. You know, it's always been remarkable to me that you have lived 
such important events in history, not just the end of communism. A lot of people associate you with that, and they should because you've been a longtime champion of democracy. But to have one of your earliest memories be of the Blitz, be of that incredible moment, what it must have been like for you as a little kid, for your parents living in exile, and then being bombed by the Germans. Well, I have to tell you, uh, I really was little, uh, and but I do remember things. And one of the things I remember, we lived in London, in Notting Hill Gate before it was fancy. Um, and every night we would go down to the cellar. And I remember the cellar. And when I was writing uh, my book, Prague uh, Winter, I went back to the apartment house and I asked the super there what had happened to the cellar. And he said, it's still there. And I went down and all of a sudden I had this flash. It was the same ugly green paint that I remember as a child. But I also then remember how we moved out to Walton-on-Thames after the Blitz. My father was an air raid warden. Um, and we had, at that stage, there was this, uh, the Brits had invented this uh, metal table. It was called a Morrison table. And they said that if you were hit, if your house was hit and you were under the table, you would be saved. And so we slept under the table. We ate on the table. I played under the table. And I really do remember those years. And they had a very great effect. And frankly, one of the other things I think about now are my parents uh, who had no control over the bombs. They only had control over their own behavior. And I think that's a lesson for what is going on today. We have no control over how the virus started, but we do have control over our behavior. So I learned lessons from that time and from how my parents uh, behaved. Madeline, you've lived this fascinating, nonstop, peripatetic, and I think very purposeful life after government, and that's what the book's about. What do you want your readers to take away from it? Well, Nick, I'm uh, often asked what I want to be remembered for, and I say I don't want to be remembered. I'm still here, and I say that in the book. But what I wanted to show, and one of the things that's been a motivating factor in my life has to always try to do something more interesting in your next job than one you just did. Uh, not easy if you've been Secretary of State. So um, as that job was winding down and trying to figure out what I would do, and by the way, I would have happily stayed on forever because I loved the job, as you know, I did think that what needed to happen for me was to think about the different things that I was interested in. And I did want to teach. I was happy to think about that. I had learned an awful lot of how public and private partnerships work when I was secretary, and I thought it would be interesting to have a business, a global consulting firm. I'm chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute because I'm totally, for obvious reasons, devoted to democracy. And I was giving speeches. And so people were saying, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do all those things. And I am doing all those things. And what I'm doing about it, Nick, really is I think that I have uh, what I do in one area informs me about others. I learn from one thing to another, and I am trying to connect the dots. But basically, I'm trying to prove I'm not old. Um, and the part that's been very hard about what's going on now, since I'm under house arrest here, is that all of a sudden I'm in a category of elderly, which is something I've tried to escape. So it's a little paradoxical that I should be talking about the book at this special time. And But it really was an attempt to show how I wanted to spend my life and how uh, it had taken me a very long time to find my voice and I wasn't going to be quiet. So that's where it is. To me, you're the foremost champion in either party 
of any of our leaders for democracy, your whole life has been in search of democracy and freedom, your family's life, in exile during the Second World War in London, then again in exile from your native Czechoslovakia when the communists came in and refugees to the United States. And, and you have stood up your entire life. How do you feel now when you see the self-confidence in Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, you know, that the authoritarian way is the way forward? We see Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Polish government, President Erdogan, moving towards authoritarianism. Are you worried about democracy? I am worried about democracy because <clears throat> I, uh, um, as you pointed out, has been the basic kind of aspect of my life, whether I learned when it was taken away by fascists and then communists or coming to America. And I uh, have recently was asked to describe myself in six words. I said, worried optimist, problem solver, and grateful American. And I am that, but in watching the kind of things that have been going on, and this is what I wrote about in my uh, previous book, Fascism, A Warning, was that I was seeing that the uh, global trend of globalization really had a downside to it and that it was faceless and that people were feeling that they had no identity. And it's good, to, we all wanna know who we are. But when my identity hates your identity, it turns into nationalism and then hyper-nationalism and that's very dangerous. And the technological revolution has been remarkable in connecting us, but it has also disaggregated voices and we're unclear about where news is coming from and what the truth really is. And there are huge divisions in society. And what has happened is I wanted to know how authoritarianism really becomes seeded. And it comes when there is a leader who wants to identify himself with one group at the expense of another, the scapegoats that are responsible for the problems. So I began to look at what was happening in Europe with Orban, for instance, who, by the way, in the 80s had been one of our favorite dissidents. He was. Yeah. yeah. And he was critical of George Soros, who actually now he's critical when George Soros actually funded him uh, for his education at Oxford. So but what has happened in Hungary is very troubling because it is a hyper nationalism that has closed its borders and that says that parts of it con its country are in other countries. I'm worried about Poland. I'm worried about the Philippines with Duterte. Uh, I'm, I'm worried about Venezuela, and I am worried about the United States. I went back uh, to look at how fascism got started, and obviously it was Mussolini, and the best quote in that book comes from Mussolini, which said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. Mm -hmm. I've been noticing a lot of feather plucking. By the way, you can't say those two words together too quickly. But um, in Europe, um, where in fact democracy has been threatened, and in another, in a number of countries, and that authoritarianism in many places is taking seed. And so I think it's important to point it out and to see what the traits are, which are leaders that think they're above the law who uh, think that the press is the enemy of the people and who really do divide societies in order to identify themselves with one group, as I said, at the expense of another. So I am worried. And at the National Democratic Institute, we are in uh, over 70 countries, but it's clearly becoming something that is I'm even more passionate about, if that's possible. 
And, and Madeline, uh, if you think about Donald Trump, I don't think he's an isolationist, but he's certainly a unilateralist. He wants America essentially to go it alone. He's taken us out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal. He shut down the country to refugee admittance. That must have a lot of resonance with you and your sister and brother who came here as refugees. And in this current crisis, the coronavirus crisis and the economic crisis, he hasn't used the G20. Uh, to organize a global response with, with the other leaders. And now he's announced this troop withdrawal from our best friend in Europe, Germany. Um, we haven't seen a president like this. We haven't seen a major figure like this probably since uh, Lindbergh in the 1930s, who wants to separate the United States uh, from the world. That must have you worried. Well, it has me very worried because... I do think that the American people, by the way, it is the responsibility of every president to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. But that requires assessing what all those things mean and trying to understand how much the United States should and needs to be a partner with other countries for our economy, for our health now, uh, clearly for climate change, nuclear proliferation. These are issues that you cannot deal with alone. We need to think of ourselves as partners. President Clinton was the first one to say we were in the indispensable nation. I just said it so often it became identified with me. But there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. I really enjoyed your book. I, I, I read it over the last four or five days. I think I read all your books, by the way. But this one was different than any of the others because you talked about how to live a purposeful life as an act two or act three in your life, and you are the busiest person I know, but there was a very surprising observation or revelation you made at the end of the book in which you said you were shocked by a phone call. It was from the New York Times obituary page. Tell us how you felt when that guy called and why was he calling? Well, first of all, let me say, um, I had a way of, of generally talking about my schedule with the people who traveled with me I would say, I'm tired, or I'd say I'm dead. Um, and it was actually for me to say that I was dead because I came back from being dead. Tired was more complicated. Anyway, I had just come from a long trip. I go into the house. I had said I was dead. I pick up my messages, and there is this uh, man from the New York Times saying that his assignment was to work on my obituary. Um, and that I might get a chuckle out of that. He wanted to know with whom he should be in touch when I die. Uh, and I thought, okay, uh, how did he know I'd said I was dead sitting in the car? But I know the following thing, because I one of my first uh, jobs when I was in high school was to work for the Denver Post in the library there, which is actually called the morgue. And they do prepare people's obituaries. So I, I shouldn't have been unkind. But it really came at a very strange time. And so basically, the book is to prove I'm not dead. Um, <laughs> did and, you call him back? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did call back. It was just the timing of it was funny. By the way, I've had the strangest kinds of things that I, I have written about in the book in terms of I am mostly recognizable. But one of my best stories from travel was that I was at Heathrow Airport. Uh, by the way, all my stories are true, but I was at Heathrow and that particular day they picked me to pick on and I'm on the floor taking stuff out of my suitcase. And I, I never did this, never do this. And I'd said, you know, excuse me, but do you know who I am? 
And the guy said, no, I don't, but we can find a doctor who can help you figure it out. So (laughs) that's a great rejoinder, you have to admit. Um, um, Final question, Madam Secretary, one of the people that you talk a lot about in, in your book, Hell and Other Destinations, is one of your predecessors, one of your 19th century predecessors, John Quincy Adams who in his own right, after he was Secretary of State and President, had a remarkable act two and three and four until the very end of his life, active abolitionist member of Congress. You quote him about retirement. Here's what he said. This is the weakness of my nature, which I have intellect enough to perceive, but not energy to control. And thus, thus, while a remnant of my physical power is left to me to write and speak, the world will retire from me before I shall retire from the world. I know you well. I have no doubt you will ever retire from the world. And that is your intention, right? That is definitely my intention. And it's very, it was fun to find the quote because it so reflected what I felt. And in many ways, it goes back to what I started out with, that I don't want to be remembered because I'm still here. And to the extent that I can keep asking what's next, I'm going to do that and try to combine my interests with my energy to make a difference. And especially, it didn't occur to me that um, there would be so many things that had to be done. And I do think we're facing a brand new world with a whole host of other issues uh, that have to be dealt with. And not in this book, but in previous books, I've always said there's nothing ever written or said that doesn't quote Robert Frost. And Robert Frost said, the older I am, the the younger are my teachers. And so I want to spend a lot of time with the younger generation teaching, seeing what they are very suited to deal with this because they are technically adept. And many of them have a lot of foreign friends. They know about, they want to think about the role of the United States And so they are the ones that give me optimism. As I said, it took me a long time to find my voice, and I'm not going to shut up now. An excerpt of former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's event at the Aspen Ideas Festival. She was speaking with her colleague and friend, Ambassador Nicholas Burns. The festival took place remotely because of the pandemic. And that audio, courtesy of Aspen Ideas. We'll link to their full conversation at CPR.org later today. Albright's new book is Hell and Other Destinations, a 21st century memoir. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.